Hello, and welcome to Into the Harbor Podcast with Stedman, Joel, and Jacob. What's up, guys? Hello. This is our uh, third podcast, um, series of many. Uh, we got all three of us here and an extra guest today, uh, Professor Gary Stewart. Welcome Let's to the go. podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. It's an honor. We're going to discuss topics on theology and just... Professor Stewart's personal background. Basically, the whole entire podcast is going to be about Professor Stewart. Yep. Yep. So. Yep. Yep. We want to get to know Professor Stewart, um, what his life is like, the wisdom that he has to offer. So, yep. yeah. So, Professor, start us off. We're um, just, I guess, was an overview a general life. background on what interests you, what your passions are, what really got you into teaching and um, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I was uh, always interested in learning, and I, I've always loved books. I grew up on a farm uh, back in the day when there were no screens, except for a TV, but <laughs> we only had two two channels, right? We didn't have cable, so uh, the, the screen time was kept to a minimum. And uh, instead, I, I read books. I used to be drawn to like just reading the encyclopedia. I'm just kind of a nerdy kid who liked like knowledge and information and uh, uh, learning. And so history has been a great place for me because there's so much to, to learn and think about in the world and in the past. And um, yeah, so I've, I've, I guess I was born with kind of an intellectual curiosity. I just love learning things and understanding how we got to where we are today. Mm. It's awesome. It's awesome. And what, um, what age were you when you... Uh, first attended college, or I guess graduated high school and moved up yeah. through that. Yeah. So I, um, I graduated from high school in 1994. And at that point, I think I, I thought about being a teacher, but I wasn't quite sure. I think it, I think I started out as a politics and economics major and maybe wanted to go into, um, you know, be a market analyst, stockbroker, politician, something like that. And um, as a university student, I went to South Dakota State University and there um, got involved with a campus ministry group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and got involved leading Bible studies and really reading the Bible in a serious way for myself. And that's when I really started reading theology and, and really felt a draw to pursue pastoral ministry and theological training and, and all of that. And then from there... Um, Ended up going to John Piper's church after college, uh, becoming an intern there and studying theology in a church-based setting, mm-hmm. and uh, and there on to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and and after that, I became I was a pastor. I was a pastor for almost seven years in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, which is uh, a large uh, island province on the east coast. Mm-hmm. It's part of Canada, and I was there for seven years and. Um, but yeah, while a pastor, I still really liked school and teaching and, and education. So I pursued a, a master's degree in London and went there and I went back and forth while I was a pastor for summer classes and um, did a, a master's in historical theology and then came back to the U.S. and, and did a, a Ph.D. in historical theology and church history. And so kind of uh, came full circle uh, back to teaching, kind of where I was as a high school student. Uh, as a high school student, I thought about being an English teacher or a math teacher or science teacher. I just loved learning and loved explaining things and learning new things for myself. And 
helping others learn new things. So I kind of came full circle with an adventure into church ministry and um, and theological study. Now now back to back to history, which was what my undergrad major was in um, all along. How long have you been at CCU? I think this, I came in 2015. Okay. So I think I'm completing my sixth or seventh year. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, Professor, you said that history has really been a big part of your um, life and just what um, fascinates you. Uh, what is your favorite time period in history and what do you love um, teaching the most uh, as far as, I guess, specific time periods, but also events in history that really excite you? Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in church history and biographies of Christians who've gone before us. I think that we, we face a lot of challenges in today's world and in the church, and we need the wisdom and perspective of those who've thought through the same issues we're wrestling with today. Things don't really change all that much. There's uh, uh, a lot to be gained from listening to and learning from those who've gone before us and, and seeing their example and, and being inspired and instructed and encouraged by those who've gone before us. So I, I like uh, biographies. I like church history. I think uh, in terms of an era, I probably like the 1800s uh, the most. They're, that's a very interesting uh, time period. Um, we have the rise of many things we're dealing with today uh, first come on the stage in the, the 1800s. And, and so... Um, um, yeah, figures, um, you, you know, like um, the invention of you know scientific developments and a little fascination with science. You know, in the 1800s, we start getting science fiction writing as people are fascinated with science, and uh, yet they're concerned about what it will do to mankind. Uh, they're kind of scared of it as well. That's when we get like the Frankenstein novel, and we get <clears throat> Jules Verne, and we get to. Um, yeah, this sort of attraction to scientific thinking, a real fear of where it may take us. Um, yeah, it's a theological liberalism comes in, and so the church is wrestling through um, issues that are still very relevant for us today. So, yeah, the 1800s are a fun time. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, just kind of going off of that, um, you mentioned the, the fact that kind of um, science becomes a big thing in the 1800s um and like going up to like our present day how do you think um since a lot of the early scientists were actually christians right am i am i correct about that yeah 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 mm-hmm. um how do you think christians should deal with a lot of like the the science and um kind of controversies that are happening uh, right now in the church and in secular culture yeah, I think I think we have to recognize that scientific thinking is done from a particular uh, worldview or a particular perspective. There are, there are a lot of assumptions that go into uh, scientific thinking and analysis, and sometimes these assumptions aren't even consciously recognized. Um, but but uh, I think we need to be presuppositionally aware. We need to understand what are what things am I presupposing when I do this? Am I assuming a naturalistic universe? Am I assuming a kind of uniformity, which has always been there in in the universe, or has there been uh, disruption to the natural course of history? Maybe the fall, maybe the flood. Um, yeah, I think we need to uh, think about assumptions that scientists often make, mm-hmm. and actually kind of question: Well, what's the 
what's the paradigm they're operating from? What's the framework that they're approaching uh, this question from? And um, and recognize that you know scientific inquiry, empirical study of the natural world, is often done from um, different assumptions, and sometimes the things you assume affect and color um, the answers you get. So yeah. so I think it's really important to you know, th- think critically. And, and so the history of science is really important to mm-hmm. think about. The philosophy of science is very important <clears throat> to think about. And uh, um, yeah, I think uh, we, we often don't think on that level, but I think it's really important to push in that direction. Yeah, it's super interesting because assumptions do really impact how you um, interpret like findings, you know, like a lot of science and like um, is, is, you know, finding fairly like empirical data. Right. But there's a lot of like debate as to what that data might mean, you know, like the implications of that and your assumptions can kind of lead you to um, interpret that in different ways, uh, depending on how you uh, kind of assume the the world came to be and, and the the basic assumptions that you have about the world can can definitely change that and the, the same is true with history you have historical facts that have taken place but yet you know a historian brings his own presuppositions and an interpretive grid to try and make sense of those things so a historian does the same thing and they have to be aware of the different presuppositions and perspectives that that uh, play into one's interpretation of the past so it's a, a similar Similar, similar sort of sort of thing. I think we need to think about theories and methods and philosophies, and presuppositions, and not just uh, assume what's been given to us, you know, by our teachers or by those who've gone before us. Well, and that also goes to the fact that, like you said, there's different people always presuppose certain things about history, even, mm-hmm. and like in certain events, actually not in certain, in all events in history, there's two sides to that event. Um, and although we can look at a lot of things where it's like this really did happen and this is like this is the interpretation that is real, there's also other things in the past that we look at at history and be like, well, maybe we weren't taught that in school because there's another side to it and we have to look at those two sides and be able to um, an- an- analyze that. So. Yeah. So I, for me, I like, um, I like um, my history students to think about competing narratives and how narratives are constructed from evidences and how different tellings of the past make use of different facts and they ignore other things. And that really uh, is a good exercise for provoking critical thinking. Um, you know, so many people just blindly accept the narratives they're told, be, be they in journalism you know, re- regarding contemporary events or regarding past events. And uh, it's interesting how you know, two different reporters could report on an event and they, they basically make it sound like two very completely different things. And so um, be, being able to use um, just critical analysis and, and learning those skills, I think, is really important. And that's part of the liberal arts training. We want people to be free and not just slaves to the opinion makers in society. We, a liberal arts education frees people to think for themselves and to question and to think critically about things uh, that people in power might uh, present to them. So this podcast you know, hopefully helps people think critically and hopefully yeah, that, yeah, for real. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. That's that's the hope. And I think one of the biggest things why we wanted to have you on this podcast is I mean <clears throat> what I I don't I think you're aware of this but like 
almost every single student that I've talked to, actually every single student I've talked to, has said you're one of their favorite professors, if not their favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's true. I guess one of the questions is like, how do you make the class interesting to all students? Because I think, I mean, pretty much all students I've talked to really love you, and are, I really think highly of you. So yeah, and yeah. and one quick thing to add on to Joel's question is. Um, the student to teacher relationship, right, of really connecting with your students and um, such as you have done to really sacrifice your time today to, <laughs> for our podcast and um, just connecting. And how do you think that um, really applies to academic success um, when the students really can feel like they can trust the teacher to talk to them about anything, you know, even outside of academics and just have a really good um, friendship uh, with their professors? Yeah. Well, the, the for the first question, how do I make um, you know the the classes interesting? It, it's I don't make his history interesting. I, I don't. It is interesting. It, like history just intrinsically is interesting because the history is about people, and people are made in God's image, and therefore, human history is incredibly interesting. It's not like you know if you asked a pastor what. How do you make God beautiful, you know, or, or something like that? Like, no, we don't. We don't have to do that. God is beautiful. God is glorious. Uh, so I don't make history interesting or make history exciting. It just is, and so it's it's pretty easy actually uh, if you work at storytelling, you know, and work at telling stories of of issues and people and conflicts and controversy. I think everyone at some level is interested in learning about other people and in learning about the past. It helps us understand ourselves and the world that we live in. Um, it helps us understand where we got uh, to where we got today. So I actually have a pretty easy job. I don't, I don't have to make anything interesting that isn't. Uh, you know, you might say, how do you make math interesting? That might be a little harder for me. Yeah. For real, for me too. But <laughs> history, is just, it is interesting because it's about people and people are creating God's image. Uh, not to disparage math, but I think I have an easier job of it. Um, so I think storytelling, you know, I love stories. I, lo I was almost an English professor. I almost majored in English because I love stories. I'm a big fan of of uh, novels. Um, uh, Charles Dickens, you know, we're reading in the British history and culture class. We just read Pride and Prejudice and Frankenstein and... Uh, because stories are very interesting. So the craft of storytelling is really something that historians should should do. They should use a bit of the theater. Sometimes I think of the classroom as a stage that I'm I'm on, you know, I assume a character of the professor and I, you know, therefore I have a role and I, I try and, uh, you know, uh, insert uh, humor and try and make it enjoyable and interesting and challenging all at the same time. So um, thinking of the classroom as a stage, I think is helpful, at least at the gen ed, the lecture level of classes. For upper level, we get more in a discussion sort of mode. But how do I connect with students? I think, um, I think students on campus at CCU, they want to be known. They want to be appreciated as a person, as an individual. Um, they, they want um, people to know and appreciate who they are. So learning people's names and learning where they're from and kind of what their major is and those things I think are really important for for uh, professors to, to do, and um, I think students will give give me their best if they feel like I have their best interest at, at heart, and I know them uh, at least a, a bit about them, you know, individually. So that that comes to mind maybe for the second part. Yes, sir. Yeah, and 
I mean, what a special treat that is for um, all the students here, because if you really think about um, big state universities that are just filled with hundreds of students and uh, the professor really doesn't know any of them and you're kind of a number in the classroom more than a name. Um, I really, I, you know, speaking <laughs> from personal experience with your class, I think that it helps a lot with just the success um, of the student and yeah. in, in being heard and known and not just, oh, I'm a number. And if I don't show up for class, no one's going to notice or care. But you are right. Like with, with that uh, personal relationship, and I've known this with other professors like Jones and Dr. Wynn too, who make it kind of personal. Mm-hmm. It's easy to try. It's kind of, it's kind of sad to say, but it's easier to try in their classes than it is to try for other professors. I won't name names who don't really care in, in a way or who don't put in the effort to kind of know the students. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really thank you for all that you do in our class and in yeah. everything. So, yeah, yeah, we really appreciate it. <laughs> Whenever I wake up at seven and I'm like, oh, it's hard to get out of bed. I just remember this class is fun and engaging and makes me want to go. So, <laughs> okay. well, good, good. I'm glad. <laughs> um, I also wanted to bring up Spurgeon. So we talked about Spurgeon. I met with you a couple of weeks ago. And um, he's one of my all-time kind of theological guys I go to to read. Um, what kind of fascinates you about Spurgeon? Um, is your kind of theology like Spurgeon in a way? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just want to elaborate on that. Yeah. Um, so Spurgeon was a, a, a British uh, preacher in London, a Baptist minister in the 1800s. And um, a couple of biographical books on Spurgeon have really helped really helped me in my theological development. I um, Specifically, he helped me become a really a, a, a solid, hardcore, five-point Calvinist. And um, I was, re- I don't know if everyone knows what that means, but um, basically he, he believed that, um, he was an evangelist, but he believed that when he's preaching, um, you know, God has a number of people he has chosen out of all, uh, all of humanity from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And God uses the, the, the preaching of, of the word and the evangelism of, of people to bring in his elect. And so if anyone comes to faith, it's because of God's sovereign grace that began in their lives before they were even born, before the foundation of the world. Um, so if someone's converted to Christ, all they can do is say, praise God for his grace. It wasn't my spiritual sensitivity. It wasn't my wisdom. It wasn't my tenderness of heart. Um, but it was, it was all praise and glory go to God because God saves his people. And he does that powerfully in, in history through the means of prayer and, and, uh, preaching and, and witnessing. I always thought that meant fatalism. If you're, if you're a Calvinist, you're just a fatalist. You, you believe that, oh, we can't do anything. And God just is sovereign, and and uh, there's no such thing as human choice or human responsibility. But but Spurgeon actually really helped me um, wrestle through because he was such a powerful and active evangelist, and yet he was such a strongly committed Calvinist. I didn't know how those could go together, and he really helped me um, as a college student um, work my way through those issues of election and predestination and. And free will and those kinds of those kinds of questions. So, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Spurgeon. I have a bobblehead of Spurgeon right here in my office. That's pretty cool. I was, like that. 
I guess I want to ask one more on that kind of topic of theology and stuff. Um, so you went to Southern Seminary, um, Southern Baptist yep. um, Seminary. Yep. And was your theology changed or altered or was it strengthened at Southern Seminary? I don't know. Like, what, what, was, your, what was your theology when you were a kid and how did that change when you yeah. went to Southern or was it strengthened or kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, it was. Oh, I, I grew up in a, um, an evangelical home, but it was uh, a Wesleyan um, background. And the, the tradition that I grew up in was very much based on, um, you know, bringing people to make a decision bringing people, be it at a, a rally or an evangelistic gathering or an altar call, people were often asked to walk forward and kneel at the railing in front of the the pulpit um, or, or raise your hand at the end of a service with your eyes closed if you wanted to make a commitment to Christ or recommitment to, to Christ. It's very much based on you know human decision. Your human decision is uh, how you're saved. Human decision is how you make commitments to be godly. It's all about human decision. It's all about human will and commitment and willpower. And um, it was as a college student, I started reading the, the Bible for myself in a serious way, and I encountered passages of Scripture I couldn't, couldn't account for, Romans 9 and John 6 and John 10 and Ephesians 2. And, and I started encountering words like predestination. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how to handle it or deal with it. and didn't have a category for it, really. It seemed to really be uh, incongruous with the kind of uh, decisionistic theology I, I had been uh, brought to believe. And um, so mostly through um, reading the Bible, talking with other friends who were wrestling with it at school, and um, John Piper and R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer, uh, those authors really were helpful uh, to me. So my theology was really shaped, I think, as a college student. And um, John Piper was a very significant uh, teacher and mentor to me. Uh, and as Southern, I, I think my theology was pretty much set by then. I was working more on Greek and Hebrew, biblical studies. Uh, but my, my doctrine was really being shaped and formed before I got to Southern, um, which is important to do. If you want to go to a seminary, you got to figure out mm-hmm. what... What what tradition and, and theological trajectory you're on? Uh, otherwise, uh, you know you might be trained in an institution where you're coming to different conclusions than that that you're being trained in. And so, it's important to kind of get your bearings a bit. I think before you go to seminary, um, so you, you understand what tradition you're being taught in, and if that's if that's the one you actually want to be trained in. Cool. Thank yeah. you. really interesting um kind of shifting gears a little bit i had a uh, a separate kind of a question i wanted to ask that applies more to your like personal life um as as a a husband and a dad um and i guess it's it's a question that i think is really important for um us guys in college to think about but even um girls as well 
Um, and that's just like, how do we, how do we kind of, as we go on and um, form our own families, how do we cultivate something that's healthy and that's strong? Um, and so like as a husband uh, and a father, like what, what do you do practically um, in your family to, to kind of create a family dynamic and environment that's strong and healthy um, and, you know, Christian as well? Yeah. Um, I mean, you thing, said you said you have three kids, right? Yeah, three okay. kids. Yep, yep. Um, um, yeah, two two girls and a boy. Anna is um, seventeen. She's going to be a freshman here, CCU next year. Uh, Katie is fourteen, and Joshua is eleven. So they're yeah, we're we're through the little 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 kid phase. Um, so things look differently when when the kids are really young. I think one thing that that you know young people need to think through especially if you haven't had a healthy family background like maybe you don't have a, a mom and dad situation that's that's healthy or that's life-giving or if you haven't lived under that or haven't had that modeled I think you have to um, work a bit extra hard to be around families like that be around families and marriages and and couples and kids, uh, and you can do that in in the local church. So I think the church is a great place where college students can be around families, especially if they don't have good family role models. It's great to get involved in a, a smallish kind of church where they can be known and where they can know others and be invited over for lunch after church and spend time in people's homes. I think that's that's really important. I was blessed, and my wife. Uh, was blessed as well with a good good family, so we had a good we had a good uh, role models and expectations and all of that for what what family life looks like. Mm-hmm. I think we have to be careful of the cultural um, uh, pressures and 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 how uh, the contemporary secular slash godless culture we're a part of right now shapes our understanding of men and women, and um, you know masculinity and manliness is really. Um, seen as toxic by many in our culture and the, the model of a kind of a feminist egalitarian model for women is often uh, presented uh, to young women and I think um, I think we got to go back to the Bible and and um, and figure out what does the Bible say about gender and roles in in marriage and in the church um, I, I think again biographies can be very helpful to see different family dynamics um, in, in working through things. I think, um, I think praying for, you know, for a spouse is really important and trying to put God at the center of your life is really important when you're young and trying to think through that. I think, uh, pursuing healthy relationships in general, you know, learning how to be a good friend, learning how just to serve people around you. Uh, those are all good preparations for a healthy marriage. If you learn to put others first and learn to serve others and learn, learn to give of yourself and to sacrifice and to deny yourself, even when no one's looking, right? Like no one's watching, you're not doing it for show or to advance yourself, but you're just learning to grow in character. I think more and more men and women grow in the image of Christ, the, the, the better uh, spouse and husband and father or mother, um, you know, you'll, you'll become. So... Um, I don't think there's any techniques or tricks, you know, or shortcuts, but, you know, the character development of learning to be like Christ with friends, you know, just being a good friend, being a good uh, 
example, being a servant to those around you, I think are all really good preparation for whatever other relationships God blesses you with, be it marriage or parenting. Um, Professor, that's really interesting that you bring up the topic of um, masculinity and just how our culture sees that as such a toxic thing these days. Um, I wrote my senior thesis on that whole topic of just like the the um, uh, origin of, you know, biblical masculinity and like what men in our culture should strive to attain. Um, I know that my uh, father has played like a significant and primary role in my development as a man and who I want to become and um, who I strive to become. But uh, how how did your dad play a role uh, with you growing up and um, how did that really integrate into a part of your life and your development? Yeah, yeah. My my dad is still living. He's uh, 81 years old. He's a farmer. Um, graduated from high school. Never went to college, but um, he um, demonstrated a kind of just humble um, walk with Christ that's sincere and 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 real and. Um, uh, you know, I think often meals around the table, you know, we're very, <laughs> we're the norm. We're, you know, um, just spending time, uh, sometimes board games in the evenings, you know, just spending time showing love. There's a kind of gentleness too that I think my my dad has um, where he's a farmer, he's working with his hands, you know, he's, he's providing for his family through hard work. And yet also there's a, there's a gentleness and a sweetness about his spirit. And I think that um, you see that in Jesus' life. You know, Jesus is sometimes very tough, and he's he's going there, overthrowing the, the tables um, outside the temple, and he's um, he's uh, really really tough with strong strong words, you know, against the Pharisees. And yet you see him weeping when Lazarus dies. You see a kind of tenderness and compassion and gentleness, and he has both of those things. So I think sometimes we have cultural models for what does it mean to be a man, but, you know, I think Jesus um, is, you know, sinless man on display. And we have four gospel writers who who give us his words and his actions, the, the sacrificial um, love of Christ, the servant-hearted uh, nature of Christ, washing the disciples' feet and so on. So I think we got to take our cues from, from Christ and... Um, and there, there's a, a lot for for men to to think about other other figures in the Bible as well, but they're sinful, right? So we can't can't uh, hold them up as um, as uh, the perfect model like like Christ is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, some yeah. of those things come to mind. Yeah, that's really cool. Thank you. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, I know. In my own life, um, my dad has been like super super influential. Um, and like me becoming the man I am. Um, and it's just, it's interesting as, as like the, the family is like the, the smallest unit that builds up the rest of kind of like what, um, we're reading in like your book about J.W. Alexander. Um, he believed that the, the family was like the, the building block for the rest of society and culture in the country. Um, and it's, it's just really, um, it's just for me, it was super important to see like my dad uh, kind of push me into more of a, you know, like challenging myself in in areas that I would kind of shy away from and and just see how like 
that's possible in a family um, where you can um, kind of push each other to, to be better, um, but in a loving environment too. Um, I think it's, it's so important, like as, as um, Christians to, to kind of like create a family environment, right. That is, that is strong and can be like a good building block for the rest of society. Um, I find that really cool. So, yeah. And I can kind of attest to growing up in a fatherless home. Um, the church really helped out with strong men in the church. Um, my mom is a great mom and she's a really good parent and she did two jobs, but she's not a dad. So that was really influential where I think at least in the church in America, one of the biggest issues is fatherless homes where there's a lot of parents divorced. I mean, it's 50% of marriages Mm-hmm. And it's are ended up in divorce, and that's not any better between Christians. So I think our church needs the whole general church needs to be better about finding ways to impact those men, uh, young men who don't have a dad in their life. Because if I didn't have some of the men in my life, I don't think I'd be the same dude today. Mm-hmm. So that same relationship that you would get from your father, I think our church in America needs to do a better job at saying, you know what, these men are kind of orphaned in a way. Um, my mom, my mom used to use an analogy. The orphans and the widows of today are the single moms and kids mm-hmm. or single dads and kids. So I think, um, that's one of the biggest issues that, mm. and I, I'm so grateful for all the men in my life that have shaped me into who I am and mm. they're all Christian men. So yeah. yeah, I like how, um, Joel was talking really about just like the role that the church can play in that because, um, I think a lot of modern churches today really forget that they have such an important role that they can play in uh, fatherless homes or in the lives of young men that are growing up and developing. And um, the church is um, really a family of community of fellow believers that are there to have your back uh, when you need it. And uh, I think it's it's cool when, um, when it works, but it's important to remember that um, a lot of churches— have kind of gone astray from that. And uh, as sad as that is, it's important to, you know, to bring it back and to realize that uh, that's a really healthy thing when you have it. Yeah. And and kind of going off of that, um, Professor Stewart, what do you think about like the role of discipline in the church? Mm. Uh, Because kind of that, um, I kind of see in part of like the father figure and, and the mother figure is an element of like correction, you know, um, kids will just naturally gravitate towards things that they probably shouldn't do sometimes. And that's part of the role of parents is to say, no, don't do that. And the same way in the church, like Paul rebukes a lot of people, but I feel like, um, in, at least in what I've seen in the church, we kind of, uh, we're very, very slow to the aspect of, of discipline. So what do you think that like should ideally look like in a church setting? Yeah, I think I think first of all, lots of churches are not structured to function as New Testament churches. Uh, many churches are are patterned after um, you know a arena rock concert, mm-hmm. and that's like mm-hmm. church for people. Mm-hmm. Now, I like a good rock concert. Don't get me wrong, but I, but it doesn't. I, I I get what you're saying. Kind of like the big mega church type thing. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Yeah, I think for for discipline to take place for the kind of shepherding that would involve discipline, um, that presupposes that 
the, uh, the, the pastor or elders of the church would actually know who you are <laughs> and would, would, um, would seek to get involved in your life in such a way that uh, should you go astray, they would, they would be there. Uh, so even like structures like membership, you know, some, some churches don't really have that, but um, we, we see the early church had lists of, you know, who, who are the, who are the widows on, on our list that we're responsible for? You know, who, who are we um, to, to look after? Who makes up our church? Who are we responsible for? So sometimes churches don't even have the structures um, in place that would allow them to do anything resembling discipline. So how, how the Lord's Supper is handled and, and how is it just, uh, you know, kind of a free for all so that anyone who wanders in can come or is there, uh, are the, the elements actually guarded and fenced in some way that, that, that the church can start to exclude people who shouldn't be participating in the Lord's Supper if they're living in outward, um, you know, blatant public immorality, you know, is there, are there those structures in place that will allow them to do uh, discipline. So I think I'm a big fan of churches that are um, somewhat on the smaller to medium size where, where um, the, the shepherds actually know who they're uh, ministering to and they, they, they're seeking to create that kind of community. Lots of church discipline is very informal just by being a part of a group, uh, by being a part of a fellowship. Lots of uh, discipline you know, through encouragement and instruction and admonition. Uh, it doesn't have to always uh, escalate to uh, the, a big, you know, excommunication, uh, but often there's there's subtle ways and and smaller ways that instruction and rebuke and encouragement and discipline take place. But it presupposes a community of believers where you're known and where people know you and are part of your life. And so I'm, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the. Uh, the smaller to medium sort of sized church experience, which I know a lot of students maybe have never been a part of. And all they know is this sort of arena worship rock concert. And you go as an event almost. Church is like an event. And um, I, I just don't, I, I don't see that fitting with kind of the New Testament view of the church as a family and as a, the analogy of shepherding doesn't really take place in, in those settings. Yeah, that's also, like, I don't want to ever say that you could never have a relationship with Christ in that big church um, because you, you can. But I also believe that if we're really going to do ministry, it has to be relational and it has to be an idea of getting out of your comfort zone and really connecting with people. Um, and worship doesn't always need to be a, an experience because even when I'm not feeling God or it necessarily experiencing him he's always there he's always going to be there even if i don't feel him um and i think that kind of like what you're talking about before about worship and stuff like that with the kind of foam machines or, or fog machines or whatever um in a way that creates a false narrative of how worship is supposed to be um all the time and i'm not saying that can't be yeah. a form of worship but also it just kind of builds a false narrative in a way where it's kind of surface level Christian. You go to church on Sunday and sing a song with the fog machine. Yeah. And I would also say like, you know, the purpose of going to church is to give glory to God and to worship him, not to enjoy, you know, I mean, worship is to be enjoyed, but it should not be the sole purpose that you go for the entertainment of it. 
And I think a lot of modern contemporary worship, um, particularly, uh, <laughs> makes Jesus sound more like your boyfriend instead mm-hmm. of your God. Yeah. And, um, that's, you know, I, I don't have any problem at all with, um, big, uh, you know, broadcasted worship. And I think it's awesome when the lyrics and when the purpose behind it is to please and worship God and not just to, you know, feel all fuzzy in the moment. <laughs> yeah. I think a good, you know, a good test of the spirituality of a church's worship would be to clear off the platform, turn all the lights on, uh, put the words before people and just see what the congregation's doing um, with, with light musical accompaniment and see if there's a vibrancy in the congregation singing, you know, mm-hmm. without any sort of um, uh, external or electronic um, amplification. And, uh, you know, I've seen some videos recently of Ukrainian believers, you know, worshiping, singing a cappella. There's a kind of vibrancy and, and uh, spirituality. And um, yeah, in worship, for me, it's all about the congregation singing. I, I just look to the people on the stage to provide some light facilitation of the congregation. But it's all about the congregation's worship. And those on stage are just servants. Um, but yeah, good test. Turn the lights on <laughs> and uh, clear the platform and just see what happens when the congregation tries to worship God together. Yeah. That's a good, I've never thought about that way, but yeah, that's, that's a good, really good, uh, yeah. good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, I've kind of a, um, this has been a topic I've been personally kind of like thinking about and working through. And um, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on it. Um, in like nowadays, we, we do kind of have this tendency to to um, kind of facilitate a worship experience, right? With like fog machines and big productions um, foam. And, foam machines. Uh, foam machines. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that one. Hey, that would kind of be, I kind of want that at my church now. <laughs> I'm going to ask. we got to get bubbles. 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 <laughs> no, but like um, in, in kind of uh, church history, especially the Catholic church before the Reformation, we, we had like Gregorian chants and like mm-hmm. big, um, like big reverent kind of cathedrals. Um, and, do you see that as as kind of attempting the same thing as like creating an experience that feels spiritual that feels worshipful um like versus maybe um like people gathering in a home and singing a cappella mm-hmm. you know like like what are your thoughts on how those two compare yeah kind of the same thing or is it, it different yeah it's it's easy to um it's easy to misunderstand or misplace a uh, what is an aesthetic experience or a psychological or sociological experience for something that is a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're told to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And sometimes we can misplace the, um, we can mistake the aesthetics, you know, experience of beauty, like in a cathedral or the experience of a, a group assembly with the sociological and psychological um, power, you know, that being in a group setting can bring. Mm -hmm. It's easy to mistake that for a spiritual experience. And um, so either way, whether it's a cathedral or a rock concert, we we can feel deeply in both of those settings. It may or may not be spiritual. It may or may not be um, of the Holy Spirit. So uh, I think even just having that category uh, and not taking... um, um, a lesser experience and making it spiritual 
uh, is one to think through. I don't think there's a clear answer. I love, again, I, I love a good rock concert and I love cathedrals, right. you know, but... Um, yeah, both both have beauty, you know, in, in different senses, but yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. And each has like its own purpose too. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. when the when the situation is appropriate then it's appropriate you know but if it's like mixing things that shouldn't be mixed <laughs> yeah you know? it's like mixing soda and bacon. your pee or something like that it just does not mix okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's or baking grease yeah i don't know anything <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, that's yeah, what we do the here. harbor podcast this <laughs> is the harbor podcast is what we do here uh, uh, hmm. is there any is there any final questions that either of you two have? Uh, not off the top of my head. I don't know. Are there any closing thoughts that you yeah. want to give? Uh, we're kind of coming to the close here. Yeah. Well, I I hope that, you know, th- these years that are spent at CCU will be um, deeply uh, formative uh, in your relationships and in your pursuit of, you know, knowledge and vocation and skills and you know my 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 hope and and prayer is that God um, just meets all the students at CCU in a very powerful way and um, brings about repentance and and uh, new conviction for for pursuing the Lord and um, and these years can be really meaningful and powerful and hope that uh, everyone's making the best opportunity of of the people that are here and the, the setting and the time you have for study and thinking and talking. And, um, yeah, so I'm glad you're doing this podcast, uh, hopefully to help, uh, your fellow students be thoughtful and, uh, to make the best use of these, these years on campus. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this with us, um, and share your thoughts and ideas and super, super awesome. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. Thank and you so much, Professor. It's been an honor to have you as our guest and to just talk about life and theology and um, everything with you. It's very insightful and helps us all, I know, uh, tremendously to hear from you. Yeah, and we appreciate all you do. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, uh, uh, for listeners, we'll see you uh, next time on In the Harbor Podcast. Thank you, guys.